0: The floor and the students are all yours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you.
1: There are uh, worksheets at the back, if you haven't got one. Now would be a good time to get one.
0: We'll
1: really be able to start uh, applying uh, that knowledge you developed this morning about syllogistic logic. Um, We're actually going to be looking at arguing for things uh, this afternoon. In particular, looking at C.S. Lewis and his views when he was an atheist and some of the key reasons why he changed his mind and became a theist, and we might even get on to his reason for becoming a Christian. But uh, I'm, I'm more keen that we just do each little section and have time to discuss it and, and digest it than that we necessarily get through all of the material. And if we don't get through all the material, you can go online to my podcast channel from the Damaris Trust find it on the Damaris website or on iTunes, just Peter S. Williams' podcast. And you can listen to the rest of the talk from ELF anyway. So um, that's there. Uh, Some of you, I played this song earlier, but uh, this is uh, Brooke Fraser's uh, song called C.S. Lewis Song. She's a New Zealand uh, Christian singer-songwriter. And it refers particularly to the start here to... Uh, a theme that was quite dominant in Lewis's uh, sort of imaginative and intellectual journey uh, something that's come to be known as the argument from desire which hopefully we'll have time to look at but this starts off the first verse here if I find in myself desires nothing in this world can satisfy I can only conclude that I was not made for here Um, and one of the really appealing thing about Lewis's writings is that he combines uh, an interest in philosophy and the deep questions and thinking well and arguing well with an incredible uh, imagination with good literary communication and style with good illustrations of what he's saying and with being able to put the themes that he's talking about in other forms than just an argument He'll put them into a poem or, or uh, a fantasy novel and so on. So he's uh, a really uh, all-rounded uh, communicator of what he's going on about. So he's born in the, the end of the 19th century. Um, went uh, in uh, Northern Ireland. Was sent to boarding school in England. Went to Oxford. Um, started his... Uh, undergraduate at Oxford and then World War I happened. He was in the Officer Corps. He was in World War I and he was injured out of the army uh, during a particular battle in World War I and then went back to Oxford and later transferred from Oxford to Cambridge University later on in life. Um, so it was both at Oxford where um, you're visiting on this tour and Cambridge where you're not. And it was the kind of guy who by the time he was beginning to write Christian apologetics in the, particularly in the sort of 1950s and 60s, uh, Time magazine had him on the front cover. Uh, here, Oxford C.S. Lewis, heresy, Christianity. It says that he was a, an Oxford academic who was vocal about his Christianity. So he was sort of getting the sort of news coverage for being a Christian at that time that people like Richard Dawkins get for not being a Christian uh, now. And he's, of course, perhaps best known to the majority of people for his Chronicles of Narnia books. And recently, they've been being turned into a series of films from Walt Disney and Walden Media. I think there's three films in the series uh, thus far. Um, and I'll just draw briefly to your attention this wonderful book by uh, Michael Ward called The Narnia Code. Um, Michael Ward was doing his PhD on uh, Lewis and uh, I think pretty convincingly shows that he's discovered an entire new level of meaning uh, in the books. People have always noticed that the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, at one level they're a fantasy story. At another level, they're not quite an allegory of Christianity, but it's almost as if Lewis said, what would happen if the gospel were to play itself out in this fantasy world? How would it go? So there are this sort of level of the Christian themes and conversations and the parallels between Aslan and Jesus and so on. Uh, Michael Ward points out, I think pretty convincingly, that uh, each of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series takes uh, particular imagery that was associated with each of the different planets that were known in medieval astronomy. And the medievals had this complicated system of of, uh, meanings and symbols, uh, different things associated with different planets. And Ward shows that Lewis draws upon his love of medieval uh, astronomy. He was a keen uh, amateur astronomer, very keen on it. He was a specialist in ancient literature and wrote a lot about medieval literature and so on. And he uses the imagery from the different planets of medieval uh, astronomy uh, to uh, give a sort of texture and feel to each of the different books uh, in the Narnia chronicles in a way that solves some of the sort of um, literary puzzles that, that critics have looked at the Narnia chronicles sometimes and said they're, they're a bit of a mishmash. A bit of why does why does Father Christmas why does Father Christmas turn up in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in this fantasy world where nobody knows about Christ? There's Aslan. There's no What's Christmas doing in this? That just doesn't fit. Is is Lewis just being lazy? Uh, is he being inconsistent by just throwing in that because that'll be fun and so on? And Ward says no. It's because the the, the planet that's uh, giving the imagery for that book is as as uh, uh, Jove, the planet Jupiter. Father Christmas is the sort of medi- the embodiment of the medieval Jove figure, the jovial, uh, happy figure of. Uh, Christmas um, and it fits with the theme of the book because of the way that he's uh, giving texture to the books from this uh, astronomical background that he had in ancient medieval literature which is fascinating stuff so um, people are still discovering things about Lewis's writing and how clever it is and we hadn't noticed how clever it was um, until Michael Ward comes up with this, and you, you read his book to see all of the... He explains about the different images and all of the parallels, and why certain things only appear in certain books uh, in the, the Chronicles. That's quite
0: recent. Yes, very recent. Not a yeah. five, five years, maybe?
1: Yeah, but yeah. But, of course, Lewis was also quite well-known, even in his own day, for writing Christian apologetics books and lots of essays... Um, he did uh, talks famously on the BBC during the Second World War that then became the book Mere Christianity that's on your course and he's still a very influential Christian apologist and it's probably true to say that in the 20th century C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer are the two most influential uh, popular level Christian apologists uh, working in, in the sort of mass market uh, as it were I've got a little clip here from those BBC talks that became mere Christianity. There's very little of Lewis uh, left. But just to give you a sense of his, his very English upper-class accent mm-hmm. and the way in which he taught, this is an excerpt, a surviving excerpt from those BBC talks uh, that became mere Christianity. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process
0: of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. And that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view are the things that have to be changed. That's why unbelievers complain that Christianity is a very selfish religion. Isn't it very selfish, even morbid, they say, to be always bothering about the inside of your own soul? Instead of thinking of humanity. Now, what would an NCO say to a soldier who had a dirty rifle and when told to clean it, replied, But Sergeant, isn't it very selfish, even more, to be always bothering about the inside of our own right? Instead of thinking of the United Nations. Well, we didn't bother about what the NCO would actually say.
1: You see the point? But again, once you get past the accent, you see that he's, he' he puts forward a, a point of Christian theology, and then he raises a uh, a popular objection to it, and he answers that objection with a an illustration that will connect with most people's recent experience of being drafted into the army and trained in the army, army life, and so on, and throws in a bit of humor there about well we don't, we don't need to bother about what the sergeant major would actually say you know uh <laughs> Uh, but you get the point so uh, there he is talking theology, talking in terms that people can relate to, using humour using a story, an illustration to communicate it and so on and yet this is the same Lewis uh, his friends always called him Jack since he was a very young boy he said, um, I's Jacksy I, I, I'm Jack and everyone had to call him Jack rather than his actual name which is Clive Clive Staples Lewis that's not surprising that he chose a different name for himself. Um, a school friend of his uh, once called him a foul-mouthed and riotously amusing atheist. And I'd like to read you a little passage from a book of his called The Pilgrim's Regress, um, which is a sort of fantasy biography of his journey to becoming a Christian. And I think it really shows that one of the things Lewis can bring is he really understands what it's like to be non-believer from the inside, because he was. And and he can sympathise, and almost he can put the non-believer's viewpoint more powerfully than most non-believers can. Now, here is a a critique of the kind of formal social religion that he found in Northern Ireland between the Conflict between the Catholics and the Protestant, it was all politicized and so on, of course. Then he went to English boarding school, and it was all just very, this is what you do, you know. Uh,
0: Pilgrim's Regress is one of his books, mm. and it, it is about his spiritual journey to Christian faith. Mm. And you know, the name Pilgrim's Regress is, is based on Pilgrim's Progress, which is yeah. a very, very well known uh, late medieval book.
1: By John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Yeah. <laughs> so let me try and read you uh, this passage uh, from *Pilgrim's Regress* and show how biting his satire uh, can be. Uh, the steward, who represents a priest here, the steward then took down from a peg a big card with small print all over it and said. Here is a list of all the things the landlord says you must not do. You'd better look at it. So John took the card, but half the rules seemed to forbid things that he'd never heard of. And the other half forbade things that he was doing every day and could not imagine not doing. And the number of rules was so enormous that he felt he could never remember them all. I hope, said the steward, that you have not already broken any of the rules. John's heart began to thump and his eyes bulged more and more. And he was at his wits end when the steward took the mask off and looked at John with his real face and said, better tell a lie, old chap, better tell a lie. "'easiest for all concerned, "'and popped the mask on his face all in a flash. "'John gulped and said quickly, "'Oh, no, sir.' "'That is just as well,' said the steward, "'through the mask, because, you know, "'if you do break any of them "'and the landlord got to know of it, "'he'd take you and shut you up for ever and ever in a black hole "'full of snakes and scorpions as large as lobsters.' Forever and ever! And besides that, he is such a kind, good man, so very, very kind, that I'm sure you'd never want to displease him. Mm. Hey? What a biting criticism of a certain way of representing Christianity. <laughs> So, in a letter to his friend Arthur Greaves in uh, 1916, Lewis said this, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. He was quite drawn towards sort of Eastern uh, religions as well. All religions are merely man's own invention. Christ as much as Loki from mythology. Norse. Norse mythology, yeah. And the problem of evil always weighed very heavily with Lewis. He says, several years before I read uh, read the, the Greek writer Lucretius, I felt the force of his argument, and it's surely the strongest of all for atheism. And Lucretius said, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And so, little by little, with fluctuations which I cannot now trace, I became an apostate, dropped my faith with no sense of loss, but with the greatest relief.
0: Apostate means to
1: from Yeah. So he had a kind of childhood indoctrination, a sort of childhood belief, but when he started thinking about it and reacting against the, the, the way Christianity was being lived out in front of him, he rejected it all. So evil was not just a theoretical issue uh, for Lewis, and he came back from that war a convinced atheist and naturalist. He spent his 19th birthday in the front line His 19th birthday in the front lines of World War One, and he was then wounded in the Battle of Arras. Uh, they were doing this thing of the creeping barrage, where they send the shells over their own sh- soldiers. And then they gradually move them closer and closer to the enemy lines with your own soldiers walking behind the barrage. So it's keeping the enemy's head down as your troops get closer and closer to them. Which is fine until there's a mistake made and the barrage starts going in the wrong direction as you're advancing and being shelled by your own side. Which is what happened to Lewis. Uh, Here's a quote from... His uh, stepson's uh, book about Lewis, uh, talking about Lewis 's description of what happened to him in the voices, so, as they advanced with bayonets at the ready, the barrage stopped advancing and began to come back towards them. Soon Jack, Lewis, and his men were being bombarded by their own artillery from far behind them, and to his helpless fury, Jack watched his men being blown to pieces in the constant roar of their own artillery support. Suddenly Jack saw a blinding light, everything went completely silent, and then the ground came up slowly and hit him in the face. Jack had been hit by both the concussion and the shrapnel from a British shell. His trusted sergeant had been between Jack and the shell when it exploded and was blown to bits. And Lewis, uh, they, they, you know, he survived obviously, um, but he always had some shrapnel uh, in him because it was too close to his art, heart to operate Back then, it was too dangerous, and so they just left it uh, in there.
0: Um,
1: But that meant he got sent to hospital, got sent home, Um, statistically, probably saved his life. And he went back to Oxford in the late, in the 20s and the 30s, particularly this Just a little note here about what it says on the sheets there about logical positivism. I won't say very much about this because it's quite a complicated topic, but Lewis was never well disposed towards this philosophy, which was really a philosophy about how we know things, called positivism. It's very much like those today who would say the only way to know things is through science. Science is the only way to know anything. To which, of course, the automatic reply should be how do you know that scientifically? <laughs> ah. Uh, this was a philosophy about not when you know things are true, but when they're even meaningful. And they said language only has a meaning if you could check it out empirically with the senses, or it's true by definition. And if it's not true by definition and it's not something you could check out with your, your senses, then it's literally meaningless. Which meant that saying things like torturing small children for fun is wrong is meaningless. Saying rainbows are beautiful is meaningless. Saying there might be a God is meaningless. Saying God does not exist is meaningless. So it's it's not quite atheism because it actually says you can't say there's no God. That's not a meaningful thing to even say. But you certainly can't say there is a God, because that's also meaningless. Um, Now Lewis talked about those plaguey philosophers whom we call logical uh, positivists, and he was never drawn into this way of looking at language. He had his own rather sophisticated, developed uh, philosophy of language, and gave a very, um, uh, I think I found in his writings, uh, a unique argument against positivism. But again, the, the, the main thing, the main problem with this view was, People soon recognised, even A.J. Eyre, who put it forward in this famous book, Language, Truth and Logic, later on abandoned the whole project and said it was all all a mistake. Um, (laughs) Because, again, if you say, um, the only meaningful statements are those that are either true by definition or that you could check out with your empirical senses, is not a statement that's either true by definition or a statement that you can check its truth by empirical observation. So it fails its own test. According to itself, it's literally meaningless, which is not a good place to come from in putting forward a theory of when things mean things. Um, So Lewis was the kind of atheist who'd been brought up, as we were saying, on on reading the classics, on ancient literature, on the Greek atheists, on Lucretius, on a, a sort of very philosophical approach to being an atheist, and he didn't get drawn in to this very narrow approach to how do we know things that started with the positivists in his day at Oxford and sort of today influences a lot of popular atheism, particularly the new atheist movement, who, who today still have a very narrow view of truth discovery and even on occasion exactly the same very narrow view of, of meaning. Um, They they kind of sail as close to the reef of logical positivism as they can get away with without actually running ashore. And sometimes they're not careful enough (laughs) and they kind of run aground on it. Um, And it was really that, in, in a sense, that was the kind of the saving grace of Lewis, the atheist, because he was the kind of atheist who would take philosophical arguments for God seriously presented with a philosophical argument for the existence of God, he wouldn't say, oh, well, that's philosophy. That's not the proper way of knowing about the world. That's not science, which is what a lot of the new atheists would say. He would say, oh, okay, here's a philosophical argument for God. I must wrestle with it and see if it's a good argument or not. I expect it won't be, (laughs) but I have to deal with it honestly. Whereas a lot of the new atheists would say, Oh, that's so last century. You're trying to think about God by doing philosophy. Don't you know that the only way to know anything is by doing science? No. So they won't take philosophy seriously, which is a mistake because it's a philosophical viewpoint and a self-contradictory one. (laughs) So let me say a little bit about the New Atheists. Uh, It was Wired magazine that coined the term the New Atheism. Uh, and sums it up pretty well when they said this. The new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. That is, Religion is not only wrong, it's evil. So not like a lot of atheists have said. Well, it's, it's a mistake to believe in God because there isn't one. Those who, people who believe in God are, are wrong about that. But, you know, it, sometimes it helps them. And uh, everyone's got a right to their own opinion. And uh, as long as you uh, keep it behind closed doors... You know, in the privacy of your own home, you can believe whatever you like. Just don't force it on the rest of us. Let's you know, all we'll get along. Whereas the new atheists tend to say, not only is it intellectually mistaken to believe in God, it's evil to believe in God. It's bad for you. It's bad for society. Religion turns people into suicide bombers. They say things like, religion. Flies aeroplanes into buildings. Science flies people to the moon. What a wonderful bit of rhetoric.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, that encapsulates it's you know, think back to our adverts this morning, with the message that they put across and this little soundbite. Religion flies planes into buildings, science flies men to the moon. Come and be scientific and rational and reasonable with us. You know? Not those stupid. Evil religious people. And actually Oxford, when you think about it, is really the academic powerhouse of the new atheism. Uh, Here's a number of uh, famous, prominent new atheists. Uh, Peter Atkins. He's a fellow professor of chemistry at Lincoln College. Richard Dawkins studied zoology at Balliol. And he's a fellow of New College. Daniel C. Dennett, although he works in America, did his DPhil uh, under Gilbert Ryle at Hertford College. Now, Gilbert Ryle who was Daniel Dennett's PhD uh, Phil supervisor, would have been an academic colleague of C.S. Lewis in the university.
0: Yeah, and he was a A.C. Was
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Grayling did his Phil in Lewis's old college under A.J. Eyre, who wrote the positivist book Language, Truth and Logic. Direct connection there. Christopher Hitchens, um, did an undergraduate degree at Balliol so among leading English speaking new atheists and it's mainly an English speaking movement although there aren't some French and continental neo-atheists only Sam Harris the American neuroscientist and um, uh, Victor Stenger who's a physicist aren't educated at Oxford basically and even there Stenger's done a visiting fellowship at Oxford so Oxford is the powerhouse of the new atheism. And Lewis is an obvious intellectual foil to them, um, partly because of this connection between his generation at Oxford and today's new atheists who are still kind of only one intellectual generation removed uh, from Lewis. The fact that the new atheists often acknowledge Lewis, they often mention Lewis as an influential Christian voice. Uh, Christopher Hitchens called Lewis the main chosen propaganda vehicle for Christianity in our time.
0: Uh,
1: and there is some, therefore some, direct engagement with Lewis's thought on their part, but not very much. If Christopher Hitchens thinks that you know, Lewis is the main chosen propaganda vehicle for Christianity in our time, it's surprising that he doesn't spend more time engaging with what Lewis actually did. But he mentions him to dismiss him, really. Um, the fact that although Lewis, as an atheist, he saw religion, as, as, as some of those quotes showed, sort of bad, for, not just wrong, but bad for you, the form of religious expression he saw was politicised, bad for people, psychologically oppressive, all this kind of thing the new atheists would say about religion. But he just doesn't buy into the same theory of knowledge. And that means he takes the arguments for God seriously. And that's really the, the pivotal difference that I found in researching them. So let's look at first round, first round, as it were, ding, ding. Uh, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists on faith. And I was talking this morning about how the New Atheists put across this idea of faith as blind faith. AC Grading. Faith is a stance or an attitude of belief independent of... Characteristically in the countervailing face of evidence. So faith is belief. Not only without evidence. It's believing something when the evidence is against it. That's what it is. It is non-rational at best. Probably irrational. Given that it involved deliberate ignoring of evidence. Commitment. Despite a lack of evidence. Richard Dawkins criticises faith for requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth, against the evidence. Well, Lewis has a much more biblical definition of faith. I love his definition of faith. It's very clear, I think. He says that faith is the art of holding on to things... That your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. The art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. He says this, I'm going to get closer to the screen to read it. He says, I love this. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a a sound atheist. But just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Just the coming and going circumstances of life. When we exhort people to faith as a virtue, to the settled intention of continuing to believe certain things. We're not exhorting them to fight against reason. If we wish to be rational, not now and then, but constantly, consistently rational, we must pray for the gift of faith, for the power to go on believing Not in the teeth of reason, but in the teeth of lust and terror and jealousy and boredom and indifference. That which reason and authority and experience or all three have once delivered to us. So the opposition is not between faith and reason. The opposition is between faith and reason versus temptation. It's not just a matter of what you believe up here, it's a matter of what you're going to be consistently dedicated to, what you're going to consistently choose to affirm, what you're going to um, have the right kind of attitudes towards, despite temptations that would lead you away from it. Uh, of all sorts, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the phrase sometimes go. Not between faith and reason, as the New Atheists portray it. Uh, the, we
0: have some other quotes uh, from your PowerPoint. After, uh, when you get home yeah, yeah,
1: sure. Yeah. Hmm. I can send them through. Okay. So, just in terms of, of asking the question, okay, what is faith? Well, some people's faith might be blind. Might be irrational. Sure, it can. Faith can mean that, and some people don't have the right kind of faith. But it's just simply wrong to say that all faith is, by definition, blind. And it's wrong to say that that's the kind of faith that the Bible talks about. Um, when you just look into what the Bible says about faith and ev- evidence and reason and what the language of it means and so on, um, so I'd certainly give that round uh, to Lewis it's uh, just more accurate in what we're talking about. Um, this doesn't show that faith is correct or anything, but at least you're understanding what it, what it is that you're talking about, uh, defining your terms properly. Notice we've just had a syllogism. <laughs> <laughs> um, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. Um, a principle we could justify by looking at various examples. Um, and if I find in myself a desire, but a desire that the world is incapable of satisfying, does that not therefore point towards the existence of something outside the world that can satisfy it? We could put it in a couple of ways. We could put it like this. Premise one. Every innate desire points to a corresponding object of satisfaction. Now, it's very important that it's innate desires. We're not talking about here the desire... For a Rolls-Royce. Okay. No. This is socially conditioned. Historically conditioned. Um, but the fact that you desire drinkable liquid. You, need, you desire water. There is water. You might want a really expensive beer. But you haven't got an innate desire for beer. But you do have this innate desire for drinkable liquid. For what you need water. You have an innate desire for food. You have an innate desire for relationship. You have an innate desire to be loved. To be significant. To have a meaningful existence. To have purpose. Um, Now... Even thinking about some of those items on that list, you can maybe perhaps see where they... Those are things that we desire that, if there was a God, could be satisfied. And if there isn't a God, it would be very hard to see how you could satisfy that desire. So if you have this premise, every innate desire points to a corresponding object of satisfaction, if that's true. And premise two, we have innate desires that only God could satisfy. We have desires for things that could only be met if there were a God who existed to meet those desires. If those two premises are true, then it would follow that therefore God exists. Now, it's pretty obviously a logically valid argument. If those two premises are true, then that conclusion follows. There's no ambiguity in the language... Um, The repeated term is obviously about innate desires. That recurs in both premises. But it means the same thing when it reoccurs. So that's okay. The only question is, are the premises both true? If they're both true, then the conclusion must be true. Um, Another slightly different way of putting it would be This and it's one that sort of French existentialist writers would very much chime with. I think you could say this: unless every innate desireness has a corresponding object of satisfaction, the universe is absurd. It's given us these desires for things that can never be met. Life is a big joke, with us as the butt. Okay, but second premise. The universe is not absurd. If those two are true, it would follow that every innate desire does have a corresponding object of satisfaction. And then you add that we've got these innate desires for the divine or for things that only God could could give us. Like objective meaning and purpose and value and... A life beyond this, and so on, from which it would follow, divinity exists. And again, I think there's no ambiguity. It seems to be logically valid. The real question now are, are all of the premises that aren't that aren't conclusions true. Is one, two, and four true? If one, two, and four are true, then three and five must be true. Those are the conclusions, the therefores. Um, and it's a very um, I suppose this kind of philosophical way of thinking about a very lived experience and Lewis sometimes talks about it philosophically and sometimes he puts the experience very, um, in a very literary way in, in Pilgrim's uh, regress in his autobiography Surprised by Joy uh, in particular um, and tries to kind of co- communicate the feeling kind of evoke in the, in the reader that feeling get people to say yeah I do have this sense that there's gotta be more to life than this, that I really do have this this innate hunger for something that I'm trying to fill this sort of God-shaped holes, Pascal talked about in The Human Heart. I'm trying to, you know, I, 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 sex doesn't fill it, money doesn't fill it, power doesn't fill it. And Lewis says, the only reason I, I, I know none of these things fill it is I was, you know, I was so stupid in my youth. I tried everything and I know they don't work I tried filling this, this hole with all the things that people try filling the hole with and none of them worked um, so what is it? maybe it's something beyond the limits of the material world around us yeah and in life, does it mean
0: something that you're born
1: Yes, that's right. So it's, I'm trying to get at this between the difference between saying you've got an innate desire for, for, for food, for sustenance, but you don't have an innate desire for a certain brand of beer. You know, the, the advertiser might try and make you desire their brand of beer rather than the opposition's brand of beer. Or a broken
0: cookie.
1: Or a broken cookie, or yes, but, you know... Um, <laughs> Obviously, n- nobody had a desire for cookies uh, in 3000 BC. M- m- why not? Well, nobody had invented the cookie. <laughs> okay? It's really hard to have a desire for something that, that doesn't exist, isn't it? Which actually goes to support the first premise there. Um, but you know, even in 3000 BC, people had desires for community, shelter, love food and so on. It cross-cultural, it's cross cultural, it's cross history, it's just we're born with it. That's just our nature is to want those things. Um, so he's not saying um, because you'd like to visit the land of Oz, therefore the the world of Oz must exist. You know um, no of course he's not saying that. But he's saying, look, notice, if you want food, you do want food, don't you? And look, you live in a world where there's things that can be eaten. You want relationships, and you live in a world where there are other people. You have this desire for something that nothing in the world actually seems to satisfy. What do you do with that? You either say, oh, okay, there are some innate desires that don't have satisfactions. The world's just playing this big joke on us. We live in this you know, life is kind of meaningless and nihilistic and you'd expect nature to just give us these desires that can't be satisfied and, well, hey, what can you do? You'd expect that life's life's just this meaningless joke anyway. Or you can perhaps be a little bit more philosophically um, optimistic about it, as it were. Um, And certainly by inferring from experience... Every time we look at an innate desire, apart from these things that point to God, they seem to have objects that correspond to them. Why make an exception to that rule when you come to desires that seem to point to God? You'd at least have to have a principled reason for objecting there. It would seem to be at very least a sort of argument that puts the burden of proof on the person who says, I know it looks like... You've got a desire that points to something that should therefore exist. But in this case, the rule, the general rule, doesn't apply because. And they'd have to give you a reason. Um, So, again, in terms of arguments, you don't always have to think of arguments in terms of, of a knockdown proof. Like, here's an argument, and therefore, once I've understood it, clearly anybody who understands that argument, they'd be stupid not to accept the conclusion. Remember what we said earlier about Okay, we could have a court case where you have some evidence pointing to the butler doing it, and then later on in the film you find lots and lots of evidence that shows he was being framed and it was someone else. You have to weigh arguments against each other. But this was just one of the the pointers that started Lewis thinking: Well, what is this desire for? Normally, desires have a corresponding thing that they're pointing to. What is this pointing to? And as he said in that recreated clip uh, there, I didn't yet say, who who does it point to, even? But obviously he got to the point of saying, maybe it points to a who, rather than a what. Rebecca, yeah, was that a... Yeah? Yes, uh,
0: I'm just wondering, like, what you say if uh, Like, I met some people that say, like, they, they don't know... I mean, this, this is a minority, but... Like, I have no need, like, for spirituality. Like, I just, I'm just very satisfied. So like, I don't... I never mm. felt a need for God. I just, I'm just pretty happy at how things are. And they, they, don't, they kind of, like, refuse to have that kind of need. Like, what do you say? In mm. We have no desire for this. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, com-
1: we're completely happy with life as it is now. We've got no unfulfilled desires. It's like we're living in heaven here and now. My eyebrow goes up. Basically, I, I, really, <laughs> um, you are a member of the human race, aren't you? You know, um, I, I, I would just be very sceptical that that's true. Um, from my own experience, and from the experience of the vast number of people that I talk to and read, and who create art, and you know, just everything about humans' own cultural expression and so on seems to show. This yearning and striving and searching for something um, and you know I suppose there might be a few people who are pumped high enough on drugs or t- to not notice that they have these un- unfulfilled desires for other things or they're focusing so, so narrowly or maybe they've kind of suppressed uh, Lewis you know, goes into this kind of thing in, in, in a couple of places and says, and, you know, there's a couple of different routes that people tend to take to this. Um, one is sort of, is giving up and saying, well, yes, life just is a meaningless charade and so what if there's a desire that doesn't have a, you know, that's, oh well, we just have to live with it, you know. Um, or saying, no, I don't, I ignore that, I don't have that problem, I'm fine with my, My mansion and playing golf on the weekend, and that's all I need. And um, I just kind of think, really? You know, yeah, I would just get them to reconsider their own experience of life. Uh, And I'd I'd really wonder if they were being honest with me, I think, in that situation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, this is. Let me find this again. Okay. Let's look at a few new atheist possible new atheist responses to the argument. A.C. Grayling, in his book um, *The Good Book: A Secular Bible*, that's thick tome. Um, he affirms premise one. He says this. He says nature doth nothing in vain. Nature does nothing in vain. Um, but an innate desire for something that doesn't exist would be in, in vain. So it seems that Grayling would have to accept premise one. Peter Atkins says longing in itself is not itself an adequate proof of the existence of what's longed for. Just because you want something doesn't prove that, you're, that it exists. But of course Lewis hasn't made that claim. <laughs> Lewis has made the claim that if you have an innate want for something then it must exist or it probably does exist Um, and so Atkins isn't really objecting to the actual argument and this is doing what we call in philosophy um, critiquing a straw man setting up an easy to knock down easy to refute kind of um, fake copy of the actual argument or position and then Blowing away the straw man, who's easy to it's easy to fight with a straw man <laughs> um, and say there I, I won, but you haven't. Uh, He's still over here. No, 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 I won. Look, you know. Um, so if the argument was whenever you want something, it must exist. I want God to exist, so He must exist. This would be a really good objection to that argument, but that's not the argument that Lewis makes. <laughs> Uh, Richard Dawkins says it's often said that there's a God-shaped gap in the brain Uh, that's not often said actually what's often said is quoting from Pascal's there's a God-shaped hole in the human heart Um, this God-shaped gap that needs to be filled and he asks could it be that God clutters up a gap that we'd be better off filling with something else science perhaps art human friendships humanism love of this life in the real world giving no credence to other lives beyond the grave i think it's it's a it shows it's not really asking the question deeply enough because as lewis points out it's actually often in the in your very appreciation of science or art or human friendships That you discover this unsatisfied desire for something more beyond them. It's actually when you have a really great experience of a work of art. Like Lewis seeing that garden as a child and experiencing some beauty. That it was that experience itself that awakened in him this desire for something beyond that beauty itself that that beauty itself sort of pointed to hinted at that said there's more to this world you're sort of seeing through part of the world to something beyond it in that very experience so it's not as if there's a sort of either or choice between having a desire for god or for things that only god could fulfill in you Um, Or having a desire for love and human friendships and being a humanitarian and doing charity work and knowing a bit of science. It's rather that in the process of doing all of those good things in life that you find awakened in you this further desire for, I don't know, perfected relationship a deeper knowledge of yourself and, and the world than the world seems to be able to give you. A, a more secure foundation for meaning and purpose than the little meanings and purposes of our own subjective existences can fulfil, and so on and so forth. Um, so again, I think he's, he's like someone who just hasn't, he just hasn't... He's not really grappling with it seriously. He's just trying to dismiss the argument rather than actually really wrestle with it. See what I mean? Okay, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists on Reason. This is what, round three? Ding, ding, ding. It's two for nil so far. (laughs) Now, you have to think. Carefully through this, but this is particularly in Lewis's book Miracles, a couple of other places, it's being a very influential argument even today, with a number of philosophers um reputting versions of this argument. Alvin Plantinger, famous Christian American philosophy, has put a version of this argument that he explicitly noted bears some resemblance to Lewis's work in this area uh, in the forties. Lewis asks us to think about statements like I believe X because of Y. And in a sense, well, you can think about this relationship, a physical relationship of cause and effect. As in, grandfather is ill today because, in a cause-effect meaning, because he ate lobster yesterday and the lobster was poisoned or, or off. So, eating the lobster was the cause... And grandfather being ill is the physical effect of that cause. And that's one way, one way of understanding the meaning of the term because. He's ill because he ate the lobster. But there's another way of understanding because. And that's a logical meaning. Between a, a ground for believing something and, uh, and believing it. The consequence of believing in this ground is to believe in this conclusion, say. As in uh, saying grandfather must be ill because, logical, grand consequent, he hasn't got up yet and we know that he's always an early riser when he's well. So now we have an argument saying grandfather is always early out of bed when he's well. Grandfather is not early out of bed, therefore grandfather isn't well. Okay, and we believe grandfather's not well on the grounds of this logical train of reasoning. So there's two different meanings of the word because: the the cause and effect, and the logical meaning. Okay, is that clear?
0: Yeah. Mm. Mm.
1: So Lewis points out, look, grandfather's failure to get out of bed doesn't cause grandfather to be ill. Nor does it cause us to conclude that he's ill. There's not a cause and effect relationship between him not getting us and us believing that he's ill. Rather, it's the fact that he hasn't got out of bed is our logical grounds for making the logical inference that he must be ill. And if, we, if we weren't reasoning properly, we wouldn't believe that he's ill, despite the fact that he's not got out of bed. So it's clearly, his not getting out of bed doesn't cause us, doesn't make us have a certain belief. Whereas, you know, letting go of an object, unsupported in gravitational field... Causes the object to drop. Now as the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel observes, if we can reason, it's because our thoughts can obey the order of logical relationships between propositions, between premises. We have this ability to see that if Socrates is a man, and all men are mortal, therefore Socrates must be mortal. We follow that logical relationship between the ideas and we reason. But that's a logical because we believe that Socrates will die because we see that this, that and therefore. It's not a physical cause and effect kind of relationship. A train of reasoning, said Lewis, has no value as a means of finding truth Unless each step in it is connected by the logical relation. If what we think at the end of our reasoning is to be um, a logical conclusion, a valid conclusion, the correct answer to the question, why do you think that, must begin with the the logical sense of because. I think that because this. Uh, not with the, the cause and effect sense of because. He notes. Uh, to be caused. Is not to be proved. Wishful thinking. Prejudice. Delusions of madness. Are all caused. But they are ungrounded. Logically speaking. So, I can, I can have beliefs uh, in me that are caused, but they're not logically grounded things.
0: Yeah.
1: So, if my beliefs are to be logically grounded, there's got to be more going on ...than simply the fact that I've been caused to believe them.
0: Give
1: an example. Well. uh, So. Maybe I had a a bad childhood experience... um, ...with a dog. um, Which has made me frightened of dogs ever afterwards. And whenever I see a dog, I run the other way. I say, oh, dogs are horrible all dogs want to eat me and you would say yeah, that's, that's, that's not rational <laughs> you've just got this prejudice against dogs because you had an unfortunate childhood experience with a dog that's caused you to react badly to dogs ok so I have a certain opinion about dogs that's been caused by what happened to me but it's not rational for me to believe So the mere fact that I've been caused to believe something doesn't make it rational for me to believe it, does it? Which means that when I believe something rationally, there's got to be more going on there than simply the fact that I've been caused to believe it. Because if that's all that's going on, it's easy to point out examples where I've been caused to believe things that aren't rational. Being caused doesn't equal being rational. So being rational can't equal being caused. It's
0: a different reason yeah. to be, be rational. rational. Yeah. Say that again.
1: Being caused doesn't equal being rational.
0: It's not rational necessarily to be yeah. afraid
1: of dogs. Just because I've been caused to be afraid of dogs doesn't mean it's a rational thing to be afraid of dogs.
0: Be rational. But... Yeah. So just because there's no reason, you can say instead of being false, be you can
1: say it's a reason why you're afraid. Yeah, if there's a reason why I'm afraid of a dog, why don't you explain? <laughs> yeah, re- that's right. So he's saying there's these two different senses of, of reason. Well, when you say there's a reason I'm afraid of dogs, it's one thing to say because when I was small, a dog attacked me, and that's caused me to have this phobia about dogs. That's quite different than saying, because I've thought about it, and here's my reasons for thinking that dogs are scary and I should keep away from them. Those are two very different things. Um, But then Lewis noticed, look, in, in in a material worldview, where your mind just is your brain, just is something physical... That behaves according to the laws of physics, everything you believe is something you've been caused to believe. Everything. But we know that just because you've been caused to believe something doesn't make it rational. <laughs> Bit of a problem for a a view of mankind that says all I am is a material system of cause and effect. You put it like this: premise one, naturalism or materialism reduces what reasoning is. Says it, it, all reasoning is is a series of cause and effect going on between the neurons and the atoms and the chemicals and the electrical charges in your brain and your nervous system, as the world. You know, impacts it through sight and sound and the senses. But two, this reduction is unable to explain or or fit into it acts of reason as acts of reason. Therefore, naturalism is self contradictory and it can't be true or can't be rationally believed, at least. Paul Copan put this problem to Richard Dawkins on one of Dawkins' book tours and absolutely stymied him. Uh, it's really quite embarrassing uh, for, for Dawkins and um, completely mm-hmm. put him at a complete loss as to how to really respond to it. He put it in a slightly different way, but he, he quotes from Dawkins' own work and he says to Dawkins, he says, you, you say in River Out of Eden, one of Dawkins' book, that we're dancing to our DNA we're just caused to do what we are by the, the physical things that we are. It seems hard to make it, to make it, differentiate, to make a distinction between the arguments of the atheist who believes himself to be more rational than the theist. All these neo-atheists are saying, believe atheism, it's, more, it's the more rational position. But how do you make a distinction between the atheist who says, we've got the rational position, uh, and the theist well, actually, the same non-rational physical genetic forces are at work in both of their brains, which is all their mind is. Okay? So that even if the atheist is correct, maybe atheism is true, but even if it is, it seems to me that it would be completely by accident, rather than by virtue of some rationality that the atheist has that the atheist doesn't. So I was curious as to what you'd say in response to that. If the same forces are at work in both the atheist and the theist, we're just these physical systems of cause and effect, and everything that I believe is something I've best been caused to believe by the way the world works according to the laws of physics, rather than something I've sort of as free from this system of cause and effect to follow the logical relations between things, to actually argue, from I'm not free ...to follow the logical relations... ...because I've got to follow... ...the physical relationships... ...of cause and effect...
0: Okay.
1: ...why would you consider... ...the atheist to be more rational? At which point... ...Dawkins falls apart. Here it is, verbatim. Um, I'm not quite sure... ...that I've got this. The audience laughs... ...in nervous laughter. I mean... ...the same forces are shaping... ...both the atheist and the theist... ...and indeed everybody yet we come to different conclusions. Is your problem, how is it that we come to different conclusions if our brains are shaped by the same forces? Uh, no, that wasn't the question. Um, Dawkins obviously has not got this, which actually indicates he's never before thought about this problem. He, he, this is a well-discussed philosophical problem in the literature, um, he's clearly not up on the literature. Now, Copan clarifies, this. says, no. my question is, why should the atheist believe he's more rational than the theist if the same forces are at work in both of them, forces beyond their control? It's not up to them what they believe. They have to believe what they're caused to believe by the way the world works. Because that's all they are, this system of cause and effect. Dawkins comes back. You could ask the same question about any difference of opinion. Yes. (laughs) So, give us an answer. Um, And then he changes the subject. He says, um, if you were to ask me why I'm confident that my scientific rationalism is... uh, Is... uh," And I think he was going to say... Rational. (laughs) (laughs) But he doesn't. He says, uh, it, my scientific rationalism um, is, uh, is the right answer. I mean, the answer is that it works. And then he said, the audience all clap, and then he says, religion flies planes into buildings and science sends men to the moon. So clearly he's dealt with the, the question. <laughs> um... No, he's ignorant about a major philosophical criticism that's widely discussed in the literature today of the naturalistic worldview. He uh, illegitimately conflates the naturalistic worldview with science, uh, and then he begs the very question that Copan doesn't address the question, he just says, my view is more rational um, because it works. But he hasn't dealt with the, the issue of, well, how come it's more rational? If all that's going on is your a rational, non-rational system of physical causes has somehow led to you believing this, and mine has led to me believing that, how do you judge between them? By what rational standard? Well, there are no rational standards. This is just the laws of physics and stuff working according to them.
0: Can I just summarize the yeah. Norwegian? The uh, for the two ulike typer eh, fordiner det er en årsaksbegrunn det är er rätt for høvn för det blev er bitt av øns. det är er en årsaks, men det är er inte en fornuftig grunn for å for det är ikke det är bara en årsaks det er, for det er en årsaksbegrunn ha en for å for øns, så så du ha på statistikk om hundene og så videre. Det for er det Så for her er eh, hvis hele vår kun er årsaks her, I i det kun, er det, det kun, gjerne, kun kan det da være at Det er der som er ikke det, rom for den som mm. altså, det er. Det er begrænset. Naturligvis må reducere alle typer virkelige årsagværdning i rum for den egentlige fornuftige begrænsning som filosofisk er det. Det er allerede determineret. Fornuften er determineret af årsag og værdning. Det er det eneste type, typer, som findes i i vores
1: that's as complicated as we'll get. The rest will be easier than yeah. that. I, I, um. <laughs> one of the really nice, one of the really powerful things about this argument is that the naturalists themselves, the atheists themselves, will argue for the truth of premise one on the naturalistic worldview. That you know, that is all we can be. There's nothing supernatural. You can't have a soul. You just are a mind, a physical uh, brain. The physical world behaves according that you know. Atheists argue for that premise, but combine it with the second one, and naturalism can't be rationally believed. Um, and I like to present arguments like this by quoting and you see how Paul Copan started by quoting from Dawkins himself. How Dawkins himself uh, from *River Out of Eden*. How Dawkins himself uh, admits the first premise. Um, he says, um, Dawkins, yeah. The same forces are shaping both the and the theist and everybody. And what does he mean by those forces that are shaping us? Physical forces. Um, So he can't object to premise one because he accepts that in order to be a naturalist. The only escape from the argument would be to reject premise two for some sufficient reason. Let's look at Lewis versus the New Atheists on Valley. What's this, round four? Ding, 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 ding. Uh, you might have noticed that New Atheists are constantly, what we are saying, moralising. They're not just saying, believing in religion is wrong, Moral, uh, intellectually speaking. They're saying it's wrong morally speaking. It's evil, because it's, mainly because it's, it's throwing aside your intellectual responsibilities to be rational because faith means having blind faith and so on and that's not being rational and you ought to be rational didn't you so there's this moral crusade involved even though a lot of them have this very narrow as I said sort of scientific scientific view of how you know anything um, and those don't sit very comfortably uh, together Indeed, most of the new atheists um, reject the existence of objective moral values or objective values of any kind. Lewis explains, on the scientific positivistic view, the world of facts without one trace of value and the world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice, confront one another And no reproachment, no friendship, no joining up of the two is possible. He says, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality. Whereas moral or metaphysical thought does not. On this view, when we say the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say... Men ought to have a living wage. We're only describing our own subjective feelings rather than making an objectively true moral claim, as they certainly seem to intend to say by saying things like that. Uh, And Lewis really struggled early in his life with this opposition between facts and values, which immediately, of course, excludes values from being things that are facts. And actually, I it would say, well, of course, values are facts. You know, they're not the scientifically knowable type of fact, but there's more types of fact than that. But lots of people in our culture make this division between facts and values that are just subjective and a matter of opinion. But for Lewis... Evil. Remember, he was really weighed with the, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. For Lewis, evil was an objective fact. And he wanted to use the, the, the problem of evil argument against God and say, there's all this evil in the world that a good God ought not to allow if he existed, but all this evil does exist, so a good God doesn't exist. But notice to argue that way depends upon you saying, there is all this evil in the world, rather than saying, there's a lot of stuff in the world that I happen not to like, (laughs) which is a very different subjective claim. So, evil, Lewis said, evil is a real thing, a thing that's really there, not made up by ourselves. And then he. Would believe that any God worth the name objectively ought not permit that evil. And then conclude that so there is no God. In The Problem of Pain he puts it like this. He says, not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me why do you not believe in God, my reply would have run something like this. If you ask me to believe that this universe is the work of a, of a good, a benevolent, an omnipotent spirit... I reply that the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. But not a good God. That just doesn't fit with the the evidence of the reality of evil. Slightly long, but a a very powerful quote from Lewis, turning around this problem, or at least partially turning the tables on the problem. It says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why does I, who's supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? Um, A man feels wet when he falls into water because man's not a water animal. A fish would not... Feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, nothing but a subjective opinion rather than a matter of fact. But if I did that, if I gave up on the objective reality of justice and therefore of evil... Then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God does not exist, in other words, that the whole show was really senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of Justice was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. <laughs> Just as if, if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know that it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. In a universe without light. Evil would be a word without meaning. In a universe without real goodness. Now, what kind of thing is real objective goodness? And what worldview best explains or fits with its existence? If nature... He says in On Living in the Atomic Age, one of his essays, if nature the space-time-matter system is the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our standards. They must, like everything else, be the unintended, meaningless outcome of blind physical forces. All that we say about nature, read in tooth and claw, is quite inexplicable on the theory that we are simply natural creatures. If this world is the only world... And it's just as the, the naturalist, the materialist, describes it. How did we come to find its laws, either so dreadful or so comic, if there's no straight line elsewhere? How do we discover that nature's line's crooked? So you can put the argument in one way. Here's one syllogism. Premise one, if materialism, if metaphysical naturalism is true, then nothing is objectively evil. Because a, a, a real standard of goodness isn't the sort of thing... That fits inside a materialistic description of the universe. What sort of material thing is it? (laughs) How could a material object or a material past evolutionary history of my species. Obligate me, objectively speaking, to behave in a certain way. It could cause me to feel that I should behave in a certain way. But it can't actually obligate me. I can't be obligated to a thing. A thing, you know, the carbon atom can't issue instructions. You should behave like this. Carbon atoms just behave according to the laws of physics. Stuff happens. Nowhere in a materialistic description of things can you find room for stuff ought to happen this way. As an objective fact. But premise two, something is objectively evil. Conclusion, therefore, naturalism is false. Again, you can judge all of these arguments by the the flowchart diagram from this morning's session. (laughs) Or you could put it more positively. As Lewis does in his paper, De Futilitate, he says, The defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos that it recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative. For if mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own, he could not go on being so indignant. What a rubbish universe this is. Things really didn't ought to be this way. The fact that he he complains, that he arraigns heaven itself for disregarding these values means that at some level in his mind he knows that they're enthroned, these values are enthroned in a higher heaven still. Hmm. Premise one. If a wholly good, personal God, the kind of th- thing that could have intrinsic value, can obligate because it's personal can command, can issue prescriptions because it's a person, not a thing if such a God doesn't exist then objective moral values duties, obligation, prescriptions you ought to behave like this couldn't exist but objective moral values exist therefore a wholly good personal God exists now it doesn't completely solve the problem of evil let me hasten to add mm-hmm. but it's, it's a jolly good first step isn't it um, naturalism just doesn't fit with the facts and of all the other worldviews, a belief in a good personal objective transcendent creator whose very nature and character is goodness who issues prescriptions, who obligates our behaviour that really does seem to fit with The existence of objective evil in a way that a naturalistic worldview doesn't. Now, of course, you've still got issues about, well, is that God omnipotent? Maybe he doesn't have all that much power. And that's why there's so much evil in the world. There's still other issues here. Um, But we're we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, as it were. We've moved the discussion far beyond saying this is a good reason to be an atheist or this is a good reason to be a naturalist it certainly isn't or at least I'd argue with Lewis that it's certainly not <laughs> how's our timing going?
0: it's, it's tea now, tea break okay. so um, if, if there are any questions come to tea during mm. the tea break you have uh, some minutes before you leave
1: yeah sure, we'll stay around for tea break and then go yeah. after tea break So, uh, so with, with I, only, I only had the section on, on um, the lunatic liar lord argument for mm. Jesus um, so if and you if can pick that can up on the podcast to, yeah, so. it's part
0: of the curriculum and yeah. we will get mention it Yeah. So
1: if, uh, that's fine, but be- better to go through what we did go through than try and stuff too much into our brains and make them explode yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So thank you very much Steve,
1: mm. thank you for coming thank you, thank you very-
0: It's very helpful stuff, very challenging as well, and and we 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 see we see now the importance of, of understanding logic to be yeah. able to meet uh, the new atheists, uh on uh, in, in a good way, not just with with uh, bad words in return. Yeah. So so thank you very so much fun. for that. Uh, and and uh, we we um, when God reminds us, we will pray for peace. And his friends and the Mars. Thank you. We will. If God reminds us. We will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and
1: then you can blame him later for not reminding you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and
0: uh, they're very important work and for the future of of, uh, of your ministry. It's going to be very exciting to see the, the new merger with mm. Gimnocal and NLR and Staffelskater, How how your work is coming into yeah. to this. going yeah. to so be very exciting. Right. So. Yeah. And just as a small token of well, our appreciation. Okay,
1: get back to coffee time it's at Damars. Norwegian hearts. Yeah. Thank you, so thank yeah. you very much.
0: Thank you very much, and, and, and God's blessing
1: on you. Thank you, you, you too, yeah. everyone. Yeah.
0: We'll be looking out for your books. Uh, we have some of his books in Damars, Norway, in the office. You find them on the website, on Amazon. Mm. It's almost how many books? Eight or seven or eight, eight, yeah. It's hard to. And, Keep track. and, and, and <laughs> a title like "The Skeptic's Guide to Atheism," an interesting title by a Christian author mm-hmm. Peter, uh, about atheism. So it's one of his specialties. Mm. So thank you very much. And uh, the tea break, then work and practical work and personal study.